1: Part 2 Chapter 39 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche Translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Poets Since I have known the body better, said Zarathustra to one of his disciples, the spirit hath only been to me symbolically spirit, and all the imperishable. That is also but a simile. So have I heard thee say once before, answered the disciple, and then thou addest, but the poets lie too much. Why didst thou say that the poets lie too much? Why, said Zarathustra, thou askest why? I do not belong to those who may be asked after their why. Is my experience but of yesterday? It is long ago that I experienced the reasons for mine opinions. Should I not have to be a cask of memory if I also wanted to have my reasons with me? It is already too much for me, even to retain mine opinions, and many a bird flieth away. And sometimes, also, do I find a fugitive creature in my dovecote, which is alien to me and trembleth when I lay my hand upon it but What did Zarathustra once say unto thee that the poets lie too much? but Zarathustra also is a poet Believest thou that he there spake the truth? Why dost thou believe it? the disciple answered I believe in Zarathustra But Zarathustra shook his head and smiled. "'Belief doth not sanctify me,' said he, "'least of all the belief in myself. "'But granting that someone did say in all seriousness "'that the poets lie too much, he was right. "'We do lie too much. "'We also know too little and are bad learners, "'so we are obliged to lie.' and which of us poets hath not adulterated his wine. Many a poisonous hotch-potch hath evolved in our cellars, many an indescribable thing hath there been done. And because we know little, therefore are we pleased from the heart with the poor in spirit, especially when they are young women. And even of those things are we desirous which old women tell one another in the evening.' this do we call the eternally feminine in us and as if there were a special secret access to knowledge which choketh up for those who learn anything so do we believe in the people and in their wisdom this however do all poets believe that whoever pricketh up his ears when lying in the grass or on lonely slopes learneth something of the things that are betwixt heaven and earth and if there come unto them tender emotions then do the poets always think that nature herself is in love with them and that she stealeth to their ear to whisper secrets into it and amorous flatteries of this do they plume and pride themselves before all mortals ah. There are so many things betwixt heaven and earth of which only the poets have dreamed, and especially above the heavens. For all gods are poets' symbolizations, poet sophistications. Verily, ever are we drawn aloft, that is, to the realm of the clouds. On these do we set our gaudy puppets and then call them gods, and— "'Supermen. "'Are not they light enough for those chairs? "'All these gods and supermen! Ah, "'How I am weary of all the inadequate "'that is insisted on as actual! "'Ah! "'How I am weary of the poets!' "'When Zarathustra so spake, "'his disciple resented it, but was silent. "'And Zarathustra also was silent, "'and his eye directed itself inwardly, as if it gazed into the far distance. At last he sighed and drew breath. "'I am of today and heretofore,' said he thereupon. "'But something is in me that is of the morrow, and the day following, and the hereafter. I became weary of the poets, of the old and of the new.' Superficial are they all unto me, and shallow seas. They did not think sufficiently into the depth. Therefore their feeling did not reach to the bottom. Some sensation of voluptuousness, and some sensation of tedium, these have as yet been their best contemplation. Ghost-breathing. And ghost-whisking, seemeth to me all the jingle-jangling of their harps: what have they known hitherto of the fervour of tones? They are also not pure enough for me: they all muddle their water that it may seem deep, and fain would they thereby prove themselves reconcilers, but mediaries and mixers are they unto me and and half-and-half, and impure. Ah, I cast indeed my net into their sea, and meant to catch good fish, but always did I draw up the head of some ancient god. Thus did the sea give a stone to the hungry one, and they themselves may well originate from the sea. Certainly. One findeth pearls in them. Thereby they are the more like hard mollusks, and instead of a soul I have often found in them salt-slime. They have learned from the sea also its vanity. Is not the sea the peacock of peacocks? Even before the ugliest of all buffaloes doth it spread out its tail. Never doth it tire of its lace-fan of silver and silk. Disdainfully doth the buffalo glance thereat, Nigh to the sand with its soul, Nigher still to the thicket, Nighest, however, to the swamp. What is beauty and sea and peacock splendor to it? This parable I speak unto the poets. Verily, "'their spirit itself is the peacock of peacocks and a sea of vanity. "'Spectators seeketh the spirit of the poet, should they even be buffaloes. "'But of this spirit became I weary, "'and I see the time coming when it will become weary of itself. "'Yea, changed have I seen the poets and their glance turned toward themselves.' Penitence of the spirit have I seen appearing. They grew out of the poets. Thus spake Zarathustra. Notes by Anthony M. Ludovici People have sometimes said that Nietzsche had no sense of humor. I have no intention of defending him here against such foolish critics. I should only like to point out to the reader that we have him here at his best, poking fun at himself and his fellow poets. See note on chapter sixty-three, paragraphs sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, and twenty. End of part two, chapter thirty-nine. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Part two, chapter forty of *Thus Spake Zarathustra* by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. GREAT EVENTS There is an isle in the sea, not far from the Happy Isles of Zarathustra, on which a volcano ever smoketh, of which isle the people, and especially the old women amongst them, say that it is placed as a rock before the gate of the netherworld but that through the volcano itself the narrow way leadeth downwards which conducteth to this gate. Now, about the time that Zarathustra sojourned on the Happy Isles, it happened that a ship anchored at the isle on which standeth the Smoking Mountain, and the crew went ashore to shoot rabbits. About the noontide hour, however, when the captain and his men were together again, they saw suddenly a man coming toward them through the air. And a voice said distinctly it is time it is the highest time but when the figure was nearest to them it flew past quickly however like a shadow in the direction of the volcano then did they recognize with the greatest surprise that it was zarathustra but they had all seen him before except the captain himself and they loved him as the people love, in such wise that love and awe were combined in equal degree.
2: "'Behold,'
1: said the old helmsman,
2: "'there goeth Zarathustra to hell!'
1: About the same time that these sailors landed on the fire Isle, there was a rumour that Zarathustra had disappeared, and when his friends were asked about it, they said that he had gone on board a ship by night without saying whither he was going. Thus there arose some uneasiness. After three days, however, there came the story of the ship's crew in addition to this uneasiness. And then did all the people say that the devil had taken Zarathustra. His disciples laughed, sure enough, at this talk, and one of them said even, "'Sooner would I believe that Zarathustra hath taken the devil!' But at the bottom of their hearts they were all full of anxiety and longing. So their joy was great, when on the fifth day Zarathustra appeared amongst them. And this is the account of Zarathustra's interview with the fire-dog. "'The earth,' said he, "'hath a skin, and this skin hath diseases. One of these diseases, for example, is called man.' and another of these diseases is called the fire-dog. Concerning him, men have greatly deceived themselves, and let themselves be deceived. To fathom this mystery did I go o'er the sea, and have I seen the truth naked, verily, barefooted up to the neck. Now do I know how it is concerning the fire-dog, and likewise concerning all the spouting and subversive devils, of which not only old women are afraid. "'Up with thee, fire-dog, out of thy depth!' cried I. "'And confess how deep that depth is, whence cometh that which thou snortest up. "'Thou drinkest copiously at the sea, that doth thine embittered eloquence betray. "'In sooth, for a dog of the depth thou takest thy nourishment too much from the surface.' At the most I regard thee as the ventriloquist of the earth, and ever, when I have heard subversive and spouting devils speak, I have found them like thee, embittered, mendacious, and shallow. Ye understand how to roar and obscure with ashes. Ye are the best braggarts, and have sufficiently learned the art of making dregs boil. Where ye are, there must always be dregs at hand and much that is spongy, hollow, and compressed. It wanteth to have freedom, freedom! Ye all roar most eagerly, but I have unlearned the belief in great events, when there is much roaring and smoke about them. And believe me, friend Hullabaloo, the greatest events are not our noisiest, but our stillest hours.' not around the inventors of new noise, but around the inventors of new values doth the world revolve, inaudibly it revolveth. And just own to it! Little had ever taken place when thy noise and smoke passed away. What, if a city did become a mummy, and a statue lay in the mud? And this do I say also to the overthrowers of statues. It is certainly the greatest folly to throw salt into the sea and statues into the mud. In the mud of your contempt lay the statue, but it is just its law that out of contempt its life and living beauty grow again. With diviner features doth it now arise, seducing by its suffering, and verily, it will yet thank you for overthrowing it, ye subverters, "'This counsel, however, do I counsel to kings and churches "'and to all that is weak with age or virtue. "'Let yourselves be your throne, that ye may again come to life, "'and that virtue may come to you.' "'Thus spake I before the fire-dog. "'Then did he interrupt me sullenly and asked, "'Church, what is that?' Church, answered I that is a kind of state and indeed the most mendacious but remain quiet thou dissembling dog thou surely knowest thine own species best like thyself the state is a dissembling dog like thee doth it like to speak with smoke and roaring to make believe like thee that it speaketh out of the heart of things. For it seeketh by all means to be the most important creature on earth, the State, and people think it so. When I had said this, the fire-dog acted as if mad with envy.
2: "'What?' cried he. "'The most important creature on earth, and people think it so.' (laughs)
1: and so much vapor and terrible voices came out of his throat that I thought he would choke with vexation and envy. At last he became calmer, and his panting subsided. As soon, however, as he was quiet, I said laughingly, "'Thou art angry, fire-dog. "'So I am in the right about thee. "'And that I may also maintain the right, "'hear the story of another fire-dog.' He speaketh actually out of the heart of the earth. Gold doth his breath exhale, and golden rain, so doth his heart desire. What are ashes and smoke and hot dregs to him? Laughter flitteth from him like a variegated cloud. Adverse is he to thy gargling and spewing and grips in the bowels. The gold, however, and the laughter These doth he take out of the heart of the earth. For that thou mayst know it. The heart of the earth is of
2: gold.
1: When the fire-dog heard this, he could no longer endure to listen to me. Abashed did he draw in his tail, say, Bow-wow! in a cowed voice, and crept down into his cave. Thus told Zarathustra, His disciples, however, hardly listened to him. So great was their eagerness to tell him about the sailors, the rabbits, and the flying man. "'Who am I to think of it?' said Zarathustra. "'Am I indeed
2: a ghost?'
1: "'But it may have been my shadow. Ye have surely heard something of the wanderer and his shadow. One thing, however, is certain. I must keep a tighter hold of it.' Otherwise it will spoil my reputation. And once more Zarathustra shook his head and wondered, What am I to think of it? Said he once more, Why did the ghost cry, It is time, it is the highest time. For what is it then, the highest time? Thus spake Zarathustra. Notes by Anthony M. Ludovici Here we seem to have a puzzle. Zarathustra himself, while relating his experience with the fire-dog to his disciples, fails to get them interested in his narrative, and we also may be only too ready to turn over these pages under the impression that they are little more than a mere fantasy or poetical flight. Zarathustra's interview with the fire-dog is, however, of great importance— In it we find Nietzsche face to face with the creature he most sincerely loathes, the spirit of revolution, and we obtain fresh hints concerning his hatred of the anarchist and rebel, Freedom, ye all roar most eagerly, he says to the fire-dog, but I have unlearned the belief in great events when there is much roaring and smoke about them. Not around the inventors of new noise, but around the inventors of new values doth the world revolve. Inaudibly it revolveth. End, quote. End of Part two, Chapter forty, recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Part two, Chapter forty one of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche translated by thomas common this sleepbox recording is in the public domain the soothsayer and i saw great sadness come over mankind the best turned weary of their works a doctrine appeared a faith ran beside it all is empty all is alike all hath been and from all hills there re-echoed, All is empty, all is alike, all hath been! To be sure we have harvested, but why have all our fruits become rotten and brown? What was it fell last night from the evil moon? In vain was all our labour, poison hath our wine become, the evil eye hath singed yellow our fields and hearts. And have we all become, and fire falling upon us, then do we turn dust like ashes. Yea, the fire itself have we made a-weary. All our fountains have dried up, even the sea hath receded. All the ground trieth to gape, but the depth will not swallow. Alas, where is there still a sea in which one could be drowned? So soundeth our plaint across shallow swamps verily even for dying have we become too weary and now do we keep awake and live on in sepulchres thus did zarathustra hear a soothsayer speak and the foreboding touched his heart and transformed him sorrowfully did he go about and wearily and he became like unto those of whom the soothsayer had spoken verily said he unto his disciples a little while and there cometh the long twilight alas how shall i preserve my light through it that it may not smother in this sorrowfulness to remoter worlds shall it be a light, and also to remotest nights thus did zarathustra go about grieved in his heart and for three days he did not take any meat or drink He had no rest and lost his speech. At last it came to pass that he fell into a deep sleep. His disciples, however, sat around him in long night watches and waited anxiously to see if he would awake and speak again and recover from his affliction. And this is the discourse that Zarathustra spake when he awoke. His voice, however, came unto his disciples as from afar. Here, I pray you, the dream that I dreamed, my friends, and help me to divine its meaning. A riddle is it still unto me, this dream. The meaning is hidden in it and encaged, and doth not yet fly above it on free pinions. All life had I renounced, so I dreamed. Night watchman and grave guardian had I become aloft in the lone mountain fortress of death. There did I guard his coffins. Full stood the musty vaults of those trophies of victory. Out of the glass coffins did vanquished life gaze upon me. The odor of dust-covered eternities did I breathe. Sultry and dust-covered lay my soul. And who could have aired his soul there? Brightness of midnight was ever around me lonesomeness cowered beside her and as a third death-rattle stillness the worst of my female friends keys did i carry the rustiest of all keys and i knew how to open with them the most creaking of all gates like a bitterly angry croaking ran the sound through the long corridors when the leaves of the gate opened ungraciously did this bird cry unwillingly was it awakened but more frightful even and more heart-strangling was it when it again became silent and Still all around and I alone sat in that malignant silence Thus did time pass with me and slip by if time there still was What do I know thereof? but at last there happened that which awoke me Thrice did their peal peals at the gate like thunders, thrice did the vaults resound and howl again. Then did I go to the gate. "'Alpa!' cried I. "'Who carrieth his ashes unto the mountain?' "'Alpa! Alpa! Who carrieth his ashes unto the mountain?' And I pressed the key, and pulled at the gate, and exerted myself. But not a finger's breadth was it yet open. Then did a roaring wind tear the folds apart, whistling, whizzing, and piercing, it threw unto me a black coffin. And in the roaring and whistling and whizzing the coffin burst up, and spouted out a thousand peals of laughter, and a thousand caricatures of children, angels, Owls, fools, and child-sized butterflies laughed and mocked, and roared at me. Fearfully was I terrified thereby. It prostrated me, and I cried with horror as I never cried before. But mine own crying awoke me, and I came to myself. Thus did Zarathustra relate his dream, and then was silent, for as yet he knew not the impression thereof but the disciple whom he loved most arose quickly seized zarathustra's hand and said thy life itself interpreteth unto us this dream o zarathustra art thou not thyself the wind with shrilling whistling which bursteth open the gates of the fortress of death art thou not thyself the coffin full of many-hued malices and angel caricatures of life verily like a thousand peals of children's laughter cometh zarathustra into all sepulchers laughing at those night watchmen and grave guardians and whoever else rattleth with sinister keys with thy laughter wilt thou frighten and prostrate them fainting and recovering will demonstrate thy power over them and when the long twilight cometh and the mortal weariness even then wilt thou not disappear from our firmament thou advocate of life new stars hast thou made us see and new nocturnal glories verily laughter itself hast thou spread out over us like a many-hued canopy now will children's laughter ever from coffins flow now will a strong wind ever come victoriously unto all mortal weariness of this thou art thyself the pledge and the prophet verily they themselves didst thou dream thine enemies that was thy sorest dream and as thou awokest from them and camest to thyself so shall they awaken from themselves and come unto thee thus spake the disciple and all the others then thronged around zarathustra grasped him by the hands and tried to persuade him to leave his bed and his sadness and return unto them. Zarathustra, however, sat upright on his couch, with an absent look. Like one returning from long foreign sojourn did he look on his disciples, and examined their features. But still he knew them not. When, however, they raised him and set him upon his feet, behold, all on a sudden his eye changed. He understood everything that had happened, stroked his beard and said with a strong voice well this hath just its time but see to it my disciples that we have a good repast and without delay thus do i mean to make amends for bad dreams the soothsayer however shall eat and drink at my side and verily i will yet show him a sea in which he can drown himself thus spake zarathustra Then did he gaze long into the face of the disciple who had been the dream interpreter, and shook his head. Notes by Anthony M. Ludovici This refers, of course, to Schopenhauer. Nietzsche, as it is well known, was at one time an ardent follower of Schopenhauer. He overcame pessimism by discovering an object in existence. He saw the possibility of raising society to a higher level, and preached the profoundest optimism in consequence. End of part two, chapter forty one. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Part two, chapter forty two of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Redemption when Zarathustra went one day over the great bridge. Then did the cripples and beggars surround him, and a hunchback spake thus unto him, Behold, Zarathustra, even the people learn from thee, and acquire faith in thy teaching. But for them to believe fully in thee, one thing is still needful. Thou must first of all convince us cripples." here hast thou now a fine selection, and verily an opportunity with more than one forelock. The blind canst thou heal, and make the lame run, and from him who hath too much behind,
2: couldst thou well also take away a little? That, I think, would be the right method, to make the cripples believe in Zarathustra."
1: Zarathustra, however, answered thus unto him who so spake. When one taketh his hump from the hunchback, then doth one take from him his spirit. So do the people teach. And when one giveth the blind man eyes, then doth he see too many bad things on the earth, so that he curseth him who healed him. He, however, who maketh the lame man run, inflicteth upon him the greatest injury, for hardly can he run when his vices run away with him. So do the people teach concerning cripples, and why should not Zarathustra also learn from the people, when the people learn from Zarathustra? It is, however, the smallest thing unto me since I have been amongst men, to see one person lacking an eye another an ear, and a third a leg, and that others have lost the tongue or the nose or the head. I see and have seen worse things, and divers things so hideous, that I should neither like to speak of all matters, nor even keep silent about some of them. Namely, men who lack everything, except that they have too much of one thing." men who are nothing more than a big eye, or a big mouth, or a big belly, or something else big. Reversed cripples I call such men. And when I came out of my solitude and for the first time passed over this bridge, then I could not trust mine eyes, but looked again and again, and said at last,
2: "'That
1: is an ear, an ear as big as a man.' I looked still more attentively, and actually there did move under the ear something that was pitiably small and poor and slim, and in truth this immense ear was perched on a small thin stalk. The stalk, however, was a man. A person putting a glass to his eyes could even recognize further a small, envious countenance, and also that a bloated Soule dangled at the stalk. The people told me, however, that the Big Ear was not only a man, but a great man, a genius, but I never believed in the people when they spake of great men, and I hold to my belief that it was a reversed cripple who had too little of everything and too much of one thing.' when Zarathustra had spoken thus unto the hunchback, and unto those of whom the hunchback was the mouthpiece and advocate, then did he turn to his disciples in profound dejection and said, Verily, my friends, I walk amongst men as amongst the fragments and limbs of human beings. This is the terrible thing to mine eye, that I find man broken up, And scattered about as on a battle and butcher ground and when mine eye fleeth from the present to the bygone it findeth ever the same fragments and limbs and fearful chances but no men the present and the bygone upon earth ah my friends That is my most unbearable trouble, and I should not know how to live if I were not a seer of what is to come. A seer, a purposer, a creator, a future itself, and a bridge to the future. And alas, also as it were a cripple on this bridge, all that is Zarathustra. And ye also asked yourselves often, Who is Zarathustra to us? What shall he be called by us? And like me, did ye give yourselves questions for answers. Is he a promiser, or a fulfiller, a conqueror, or an inheritor, a harvest, or a plowshare, a physician, or a healed one? Is he a poet, or a genuine one, an emancipator, or a subjugator? "'a good one or an evil one. "'I walk amongst men "'as the fragments of the future, "'that future which I contemplate. "'And it is all my poetization "'and aspiration to compose and collect into unity "'what is fragment and riddle and fearful chance. "'And how could I endure to be a man "'if man were not also the composer?' And Riddle reader and redeemer of chance To redeem what is past and to transform every it was into thus would I have it That only do I call redemption Will so is the emancipator and joy bringer called Thus have I taught you my friends But now, learn this likewise, the will itself is still a prisoner. Willing emancipateth. But what is that called which still putteth the emancipator in chains? It was. Thus is the will's teeth gnashing and lonesomest tribulation called. Impotent toward what hath been done, it is a malicious spectator of all that is past. "'Not backward can the will will, "'that it cannot break time and time's desire. "'That is the will's lonesomest tribulation. "'Willing emancipateth. "'What doth willing itself devise "'in order to get free from its tribulation "'and mock at its prison? "'Ah, a fool becometh every prisoner. "'Foolishly delivereth itself also the imprisoned will.' that time doth not run backward that is its animosity that which was so is the stone which it cannot roll called and thus doth it roll stones out of animosity and ill-humor and taketh revenge on whatever doth not like it feel rage and ill-humor thus did the will the emancipator become a torturer and on all that is capable of suffering it taketh revenge, because it cannot go backward. This, yea, this alone is revenge itself, the will's antipathy to time, and its it was. Verily, a great folly dwelleth in our will, "'and it became a curse unto all humanity that this folly acquired spirit. "'The spirit of revenge, my friends, that hath hitherto been man's best contemplation, "'and where there was suffering it was claimed there was always
2: penalty.
1: "'Penalty! So calleth itself revenge. "'With a lying word it feigneth a good conscience.' and because in the willer himself there is suffering, because he cannot will backwards. Thus was willing itself, and all life claimed, to be penalty. And then did cloud after cloud roll over the spirit, until at last madness preached. Everything perisheth, therefore everything deserveth to perish. And this itself is justice, the law of time, that he must devour his children. Thus did Madness preach. Morally are things ordered according to justice and penalty. Oh, where is there deliverance from the flux of things and from the existence of penalty? Thus did Madness preach. Can there be deliverance when there is eternal justice? "'Alas! Unrollable is the stone it was. Eternal must also be all penalties.' Thus did Madness preach. "'No deed can be annihilated. How could it be undone by the penalty? "'This, this is what is eternal in the existence of penalty. "'That existence also must be eternally recurring deed and guilt.' "'unless the will should at last deliver itself, "'and willing become non-willing. "'But ye know, my brethren, this fabulous song of madness. "'Away from those fabulous songs did I lead you when I taught you. "'The will is a creator. "'All it was is a fragment, a riddle, a fearful chance.' Until the creating will saith thereto, but thus would I have it. Until the creating will saith thereto, but thus do I will it, thus shall I will it. But did it ever speak thus? And when doth this take place? Hath the will been unharnessed from its own folly? Hath the will become its own deliverer and joy-bringer? Hath it unlearned the spirit of revenge and all teeth gnashing? And who hath taught it reconciliation with time, and something higher than all reconciliation? Something higher than all reconciliation must the will, will, which is the will to power. And how doth that take place? "'who hath taught it also to will backwards?' "'But at this point in his discourse "'it chanced that Zarathustra suddenly paused "'and looked like a person in the greatest alarm. "'With terror in his eyes did he gaze on his disciples, "'his glances pierced as with arrows their thoughts "'and arrear thoughts. "'But after a brief space he again laughed "'and said soothedly, "'It is difficult to live amongst men.' because silence is so difficult, especially for a babbler. Thus spake Zarathustra. The hunchback, however, had listened to the conversation, and had covered his face during the time. But when he heard Zarathustra laugh, he looked up with curiosity and said slowly, But why doth Zarathustra speak otherwise unto us than unto his disciples? Zarathustra answered, "'What is there to be wondered at? With hunchbacks one may well speak in a hunchbacked way.'
2: "'Very good,'
1: said the hunchback. "'And with pupils one may well tell tales out of school. But why doth Zarathustra speak otherwise unto his pupils than unto himself?' notes by anthony m lodovici zarathustra here addresses cripples he tells them of other cripples the great men in this world who have one organ or faculty inordinately developed at the cost of their other faculties this is doubtless a reference to a fact which is too often noticeable in the case of so many of the world's giants in art science or religion In verse 19 we are told what Nietzsche called redemption. That is to say, the ability to say of all that is past, Thus would I have it. The inability to say this, and the resentment which results therefrom, he regards as the source of all our feelings of revenge, and all our desires to punish. Punishment meaning to him merely a euphemism for the word revenge, "'invented in order to still our consciences. "'He who can be proud of his enemies, "'who can be grateful to them for the obstacles they have put in his way, "'he who can regard his worst calamity as but the extra strain on the bow of his life, "'which is to send the arrow of his longing even further than he could have hoped. "'This man knows no revenge. "'Neither does he know despair.' He truly has found redemption, and can turn on the worst in his life, and even in himself, and call it his best. See Notes on Chapter 57 End of Part 2, Chapter 42 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Part 2, Chapter 43 of Thus Spake Zarathustra* by Friedrich Nietzsche Translated by Thomas Common this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. MANLY PRUDENCE. Not the height, it is the declivity that is terrible. The declivity, where the gaze shooteth DOWNWARDS, and the hand graspeth UPWARDS, there doth the heart become giddy through its double will: ah, friends, do ye divine also my heart's double will? this, this is my declivity and my danger, that my gaze suiteth toward the summit, and my hand would fain clutch and lean on the depth. To man clingeth my will, with chains do I bind myself to man, because I am pulled upwards to the superman, for thither doth mine other will tend. And therefore do I live blindly among men, as if I knew them not that my hand may not entirely lose belief in firmness. I know not you men, this gloom and consolation is often spread around me, I sit at the gateway for every rogue and ask, Who wisheth to deceive me? This is my first manly prudence, that I allow myself to be deceived, so as not to be on my guard against deceivers ah if i were on my guard against man how could man be an anchor to my ball too easily would i be pulled upwards and away this providence is over my fate that i have to be without foresight and he who would not languish among men must learn to drink out of all glasses and he who would keep clean amongst men must know how to wash himself even with dirty water. And thus spake I often to myself for consolation. Courage, cheer up, old heart. An unhappiness hath failed to befall thee. Enjoy that as thy happiness. This, however, is mine other manly prudence. I am more forbearing to the vain than to the proud. Is not wounded vanity the mother of all tragedies? Where, however, pride is wounded, there, there groweth up something better than pride. That life may be fair to behold, its game must be well played. For that purpose, however, it needeth good actors. Good actors have I found all the vain ones. They play and wish people to be fond of beholding them all their spirit is in this wish they represent themselves they invent themselves in their neighborhood i like to look upon life it cureth of melancholy therefore am i forbearing to the vain because they are the physicians of my melancholy and keep me attached to man as to a drama and further who conceiveth the full depth of the modesty of the vain man I am favourable to him, and sympathetic on account of his modesty. From you would he learn his belief in himself. He feedeth upon your glances, he eateth praise out of your hands. Your lies doth he even believe, when you lie favourably about him. For in its depths sigheth his heart, What am I? And if that be the true virtue which is unconscious of itself, well, the vain man is unconscious of his modesty. This is, however, my third manly prudence. I am not put out of conceit with the wicked by your timorousness. I am happy to see the marvels the warm sun hatcheth, tigers and palms and rattlesnakes, Also amongst men there is a beautiful brood of the warm sun, and much that is marvellous in the wicked. In truth, as your wisest did not seem to me so very wise, so found I also human wickedness below the fame of it. And oft did I ask with a shake of the head, Why still rattle ye rattlesnakes? Verily, there is still a future even for evil.' and the warmest south is still undiscovered by man how many things are now called the worst wickedness which are only twelve feet broad and three months long some day however will greater dragons come into the world for that the superman may not lack his dragon the super dragon that is worthy of him there must still much warm sun glow on moist virgin forest out of your wild cats must tigers have evolved and out of your poison toads crocodiles for the good hunter shall have a good hunt and verily ye good and just in you there is much to be laughed at and especially your fear of what hath hitherto been called the devil So alien are ye in your souls to what is great, that to you the superman would be frightful in his goodness. And ye wise and knowing ones, ye would flee from the solar glow of the wisdom in which the superman joyfully batheth his nakedness. Ye highest men, who have come within my ken, this is my doubt of you, and my secret laughter. I suspect ye would call my superman a devil. Ah, I became tired of those highest and best ones. From their height did I long to be up, out, and away to the superman. A horror came over me when I saw those best ones naked. Then there grew for me the pinions to soar away into distant futures." into more distant futures, into more southern souths than ever artists dreamed of, thither, where gods are ashamed of all clothes. But disguised do I want to see you, ye neighbours and fellow-men, and well-attired and vain and estimable as the good and just. And disguised will I myself sit amongst you, that I may mistake you and myself. For that is my last manly prudence. Thus spake Zarathustra. Notes by Anthony M. Ludovici This discourse is very important. In Beyond Good and Evil we hear often enough that the select and superior man must wear a mask. And here we find this injunction explained. and he who would not languish amongst men must learn to drink out of all glasses, and he who would keep clean amongst men must know how to wash himself even with dirty water. This, I venture to suggest, requires some explanation. At a time when individuality is supposed to be shown most tellingly by putting boots on one's hands and gloves on one's feet, It is somewhat refreshing to come across a true individualist who feels the chasm between himself and others so deeply that he must perforce adapt himself to them outwardly, at least in all respects, so that the inner difference should be overlooked. Nietzsche practically tells us here that it is not he who intentionally wears eccentric clothes or does eccentric things who is truly the individualist. The profound man, who is by nature differentiated from his fellows, feels this difference too keenly to call attention to it by any outward show. He is shamefast and bashful with those who surround him, and wishes not to be discovered by them, just as one instinctively avoids all lavish display of comfort or wealth in the presence of a poor friend." End of part two, chapter forty three, recording by john Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Part two, chapter forty four of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. THE STILLEST HOUR. What hath happened unto me, my friends? Ye see me troubled driven forth, unwillingly obedient, ready to go, alas, to go away from you. Yea, once more must Zarathustra retire to his solitude, but unjoyously this time doth the bear go back to his cave. What hath happened unto me? Who ordereth this? Ah, mine angry mistress— wisheth it so, she spake unto me, Have I ever named her name to you? Yesterday, toward evening, there spake unto me, My stillest hour. That is the name of my terrible mistress. And thus did it happen, for everything must I tell you, that your heart may not harden against this suddenly departing one. Do ye know the terror of him who falleth asleep? To the very toes he is terrified, because the ground giveth way unto him, and the dream beginneth. This do I speak unto you in parable. Yesterday, at the stillest hour, did the ground give way under me. The dream began. The hour hand moved on. The timepiece of my life drew breath. Never did I hear such stillness around me, so that my heart was terrified. Then was there spoken unto me without voice,
2: Thou knowest it, Zarathustra.
1: And I cried in terror at this whispering, and the blood left my face. But I was silent. Then was there once more spoken unto me without voice.
2: Thou knowest it, Zarathustra, but thou dost not speak it.
1: At last I answered like one defiant. Yea, I know it, but I will not speak it. Then was there again spoken unto me without voice. Thou wilt not, Zarathustra is this
2: true conceal thyself not behind thy defiance
1: and i wept and trembled like a child and said ah i would indeed but how can i do it exempt me only from this it is beyond my power then was there again spoken unto me without voice
2: "'What matter about thyself, Zarathustra? "'Speak thy word, and succumb.'
1: "'And I answered, "'Ah, is it my word? "'Who am I? "'I await the worthier one. "'I am not worthy even to succumb by it.' "'Then was there again spoken unto me without voice, what
2: matter about thyself thou art not yet humble enough for me
1: humility hath the hardest skin and i answered what hath not the skin of my humility endured at the foot of my height do i dwell how high are my summits no one hath yet told me but well do i know my valleys then was there again spoken unto me without voice
2: o zarathustra he who hath to remove mountains removeth also valleys and plains
1: and i answered as yet hath my word not removed mountains and what i have spoken hath not reached man i went indeed unto men But not yet have I attained unto them. Then was there again spoken unto me without voice. What knowest thou thereof? The dew falleth on the grass when the night is most silent. And I answered, They mocked me when I found and walked in my own path, and certainly did my feet then tremble. And thus did they speak unto me, thou forgottest the path before now dost thou also forget how to walk then was there again spoken unto me without voice
2: what matter about their mockery thou art one who hast unlearned to obey now shalt thou command knowest thou not who is most needed by all He who commandeth great things. To execute great things is difficult, but the more difficult task is to command great things. This is thy most unpardonable obstinacy. Thou hast the power, and thou wilt not rule.
1: And I answered, I lack the lion's voice for all commanding then was there again spoken unto me as a whispering
2: it is the stillest words which bring the storm thoughts that come with doves footsteps guide the world o zarathustra thou shalt go as a shadow of that which is to come thus wilt thou command and in commanding go foremost
1: and i answered i am ashamed then was there again spoken unto me without voice
2: thou must yet become a child and be without shame the pride of youth is still upon thee late hast thou become young but he who would become a child must surmount even his youth
1: and i considered a long while and trembled at last however did i say what i had said at first i will not then did a laughing take place all around me alas how that laughing lacerated my bowels and cut into my heart and there was spoken unto me for the last time oh, Zarathustra
2: thy fruits are ripe but thou art not ripe for thy fruits so must thou go again into solitude for thou shalt yet become mellow
1: and again there was a laughing and it fled then did it become still all around me as with a double stillness i lay however on the ground and the sweat flowed from my limbs Now have ye heard all, and why I have to return into my solitude. Nothing have I kept hidden from you, my friends, but even this have ye heard from me. Who is still the most reserved of men, and will be so? Ah, my friends, I should have something more to say unto you. I should have something more to give unto you. Why do I not give it? Am I then a niggard? When, however, Zarathustra had spoken these words, the violence of his pain and a sense of the nearness of his departure from his friends came over him, so that he wept aloud, and no one knew how to console him. In the night, however, he went away, alone, and left his friends. Notes by Anthony M. Ludovici this seems to me to give an account of the great struggle which must have taken place in nietzsche's soul before he finally resolved to make known the more esoteric portions of his teaching our deepest feelings crave silence there is a certain self-respect in the serious man which makes him hold his profoundest feelings sacred before they are uttered they are full of the modesty of a virgin and often the oldest sage will blush like a girl, when this virginity is violated by an indiscretion, which forces him to reveal his deepest thoughts. End of part two, chapter forty-four. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Part three, Chapter forty five of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. THIRD PART: Ye look aloft when ye long for exaltation, and I look downward because I am exalted. Who among you can at the same time laugh and be exalted? He who climbeth on the highest mountains laugheth at all tragic plays and tragic realities. Zarathustra, Part 1 Reading and Writing The Wanderer Then, when it was about midnight, Zarathustra went his way over the ridge of the isle that he might arrive early in the morning at the other coast, because there he meant to embark. For there was a good roadstead there, in which foreign ships also liked to anchor. Those ships took many people with them, who wished to cross over from the Happy Isles. So, when Zarathustra thus ascended the mountain, he thought on the way of his many solitary wanderings from youth onwards, and how many mountains and ridges and summits he had already climbed. "'I am a wanderer and mountain-climber,' said he to his heart. "'I love not the plains.' and it seemeth I cannot long sit still. And, whatever may still overtake me as fate and experience, a wandering will be therein, and a mountain climbing. In the end one experienceth only one's self. The time is now past when accidents could befall me, and what could now fall to my lot, which would not already be mine own? It returneth only— it cometh home to me at last mine own self and such of it as hath been long abroad and scattered among things and accidents and one thing more do I know I stand now before my last summit and before that which hath been longest reserved for me ah my hardest path must I ascend Ah. I have begun my lonesomest wandering he however who is of my nature doth not avoid such an hour the hour that saith unto him now only dost thou go the way to thy greatness summit and abyss these are now comprised together thou goest the way to thy greatness now hath it become thy last refuge What was hitherto thy last danger? Thou goest the way to thy greatness. It must now be thy best courage that there is no longer any path behind thee. Thou goest the way to thy greatness. Here shall no one steal after thee. Thy foot itself hath effaced the path behind thee, and over it standeth written, Impossibility. And if all ladders henceforth fail thee, then must thou learn to mount upon thine own head. How couldst thou mount upward otherwise? Upon thine own head, and beyond thine own heart. Now must the gentlest in thee become the hardest. He who hath always much indulged himself, sickeneth at last by his much indulgence. Praises on what maketh hardy. I do not praise the land where butter and honey flow. To learn TO look AWAY FROM oneself is necessary in order to see many things: this hardiness is needed by every mountain-climber, he, however, who is obtrusive with his eyes as a discerner, how can he ever see more of anything than its foreground, but thou, O Zarathustra! wouldst view the ground of everything and its background thus must thou mount even above thyself up upwards until thou hast even thy stars under thee yea to look down upon myself and even upon my stars that only would i call my summit that hath remained for me as my last summit thus spake zarathustra to himself while ascending comforting his heart with harsh maxims, for he was sore at heart as he had never been before. And when he had reached the top of the mountain ridge, behold, there lay the other sea spread out before him, and he stood still and was long silent. The night, however, was cold at this height, and clear and starry. I recognize my destiny, said he at last, sadly, Well, I am ready. Now hath my last lonesomeness begun. Ah, this somber, sad sea below me. Ah, this somber, nocturnal vexation. Ah, fate and sea! To you must I now go down. Before my highest mountain do I stand, and before my longest wandering. Therefore must I first go deeper down than I ever ascended Deeper down into pain than I ever ascended even into its darkest flood So willeth my fate Well, I am ready Whence come the highest mountains so did I once ask Then did I learn that they come out of the sea that testimony is inscribed on their stones and on the walls of their summits. Out of the deepest must the highest come to its height. Thus spake Zarathustra on the ridge of the mountain where it was cold. When, however, he came into the vicinity of the sea, and at last stood alone amongst the cliffs, then had he become weary on his way and eagerer than ever before. "'Everything as yet sleepeth,' said he. "'Even the sea sleepeth.' drowsily and strangely doth its eye gaze upon me. But it breatheth warmly, I feel it, and I feel also that it dreameth, it tosseth about dreamily on hard pillows. Hark! Hark! How it groaneth with evil recollections or evil expectations! I am sad along with thee, thou dusky monster and angry with myself, even for thy sake. Ah, that my hand hath not strength enough! Gladly, indeed, would I free thee from evil dreams. And while Zarathustra thus spake, he laughed at himself with melancholy and bitterness. What? Zarathustra, said he, wilt thou even sing consolation to the sea? Ah! thou amiable fool's erathustra thou too blindly confiding one but thus hast thou ever been ever hast thou approached confidently all that is terrible every monster wouldst thou caress a whiff of warm breath a little soft tuff on its paw and immediately wert thou ready to love and lure it love is the danger of the lonesomest one love to anything if it only live laughable verily is my folly and my modesty in love thus spake zarathustra and laughed thereby a second time then however he thought of his abandoned friends and as if he had done them a wrong with his thoughts he upbraided himself because of his thoughts and forthwith it came to pass that the laughter wept with anger and longing, wept Zarathustra bitterly. Notes by Anthony M. Ludovici. This is perhaps the most important of all the four parts. If it contained only quote, the vision and the enigma, unquote, and quote, the old and new tables, unquote, I should still be of this opinion for in the former of these discourses we meet with what Nietzsche regarded as the crowning doctrine of his philosophy, and in quote, "The Old and New Tables," end quote, we have a valuable epitome of practically all his leading principles. End of Part three, Chapter forty five, Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Part three, Chapter forty six of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. THE VISION AND THE ENIGMA. (one) When it got abroad among the sailors that Zarathustra was on board the ship (for a man who came from the Happy Isles had gone on board along with him), there was great curiosity and expectation. But Zarathustra kept silent for two days, and was cold and deaf with sadness, so that he neither answered looks nor questions. On the evening of the second day, however, he again opened his ears, though he still kept silent. For there were many curious and dangerous things to be heard on board the ship, which came from afar, and was to go still further. Zarathustra, however, was fond of all those who make distant voyages, and dislike to live without danger and behold when listening his own tongue was at last loosened and the ice of his heart broke then did he begin to speak thus to you the daring venturers and adventurers and whoever hath embarked with cunning sails upon frightful seas to you the enigma intoxicated the twilight enjoyers whose souls are allured by flutes to every treacherous gulf. For ye dislike to grope at a thread with cowardly hand, and where ye can divine, there do ye hate to calculate. To you only do I tell the enigma that I saw, the vision of the lonesomest one. Gloomily walked I lately in corpse-colored twilight, gloomily and sternly, with compressed lips, not only one sun had set for me, a path which ascended daringly among boulders, an evil lonesome path, which neither herb nor shrub any longer cheered, a mountain-path crunched under the daring of my foot, mutely marching over the scornful clinking of pebbles, trampling the stone that let it slip; Thus did my foot force its way upwards. Upwards, in spite of the spirit that drew it downwards toward the abyss, the spirit of gravity, my devil and arch-enemy. Upwards, although it sat upon me half dwarf, half mole, paralyzed, paralyzing, dripping lead in mine ear and thoughts like drops of lead into my brain. Oh, Zarathustra! it whispered scornfully, syllable by syllable,
2: "Thou stone of wisdom, thou threwest thyself high, but every thrown stone must FALL!" O Zarathustra, thou stone of wisdom, thou sling-stone, thou star-destroyer, thyself threwest thou SO high, but every thrown stone must fall! condemned of thyself and to thine own stoning o zarathustra far indeed threwest thou thy stone but upon thyself will it recoil
1: then was the dwarf silent and it lasted long the silence however oppressed me and to be thus in pairs one is verily lonesomer than when alone i ascended i ascended i dreamt i thought but everything oppressed me a sick one did i resemble whom bad torture wearieth and a worse dream reawakeneth out of his first sleep but there is something in me which i call courage it hath hitherto slain for me every dejection this courage at last bade me stand still and say dwarf thou or I for courage is the best slayer courage which attacketh for in every attack there is sound of triumph man however is the most courageous animal thereby hath he overcome every animal with sound of triumph hath he overcome every pain human pain however Is the sorest pain courage slayeth also giddiness at abysses and where doth man not stand at abysses is not seeing itself seeing abysses courage is the best slayer courage slayeth also fellow-suffering fellow-suffering however is the deepest abyss As deeply as man looketh into life, so deeply also doth he look into suffering. Courage, however, is the best slayer, courage which attacketh. It slayeth even death itself, for it saith, Was that life? Well, once more. In such speech, however, there is much sound of triumph, he who hath ears to hear. Let him hear. 2. Halt, dwarf, said I, either I or thou. I, however, am the stronger of the two. Thou knowest not mine abysmal thought. It couldst thou not endure. Then happened that which made me lighter. For the dwarf sprang from my shoulder the prying sprite and it squatted on a stone in front of me there was however a gateway just where we halted look at this gateway dwarf i continued it hath two faces two roads come together here these hath no one yet gone to the end of this long lane backwards it continueth for an eternity and that long lane forward That is another eternity they are antithetical to one another these roads they directly abut on one another and it is here at this gateway that they come together the name of the gateway is inscribed above this moment but should one follow them further and ever further and further on thinkest thou dwarf that these roads would be eternally antithetical.
2: "'Everything
1: straight lieth,' murmured the dwarf contemptuously.
2: "'All truth is crooked. Time itself is a circle.'
1: "'Thou spirit of gravity,' said I wrathfully, "'do not take it too lightly, or I shall let thee squat where thou squattest haltfoot, and I carried thee high.' Observe, continued I, this moment, from the gateway, this moment, there runneth a long, eternal lane backwards. Behind us lieth an eternity. Must not whatever can run its course of all things have already run along that lane? Must not whatever can happen of all things "'have already happened, resulted, and gone by? "'And if everything have already existed, "'what thinkest thou, dwarf, of this moment? "'Must not this gateway also have already existed? "'And are not all things closely bound together in such wise "'that this moment draweth all coming things after it? "'Consequently, itself also For whatever can run its course of all things also in this long lane outward must it once more run and This slow spider which creepeth in the moonlight and this moonlight itself and Thou and I in this gateway whispering together whispering of eternal things Must we not all have already existed? And must we not return and run in that other lane out before us, that long, weird lane? Must we not eternally return? Thus did I speak, and always more softly, for I was afraid of my own thoughts and arrear thoughts. Then suddenly did I hear a dog howl near me. Had I ever heard a dog howl thus? My thoughts ran back. Yes, when I was a child, in my most distant childhood. Then did I hear a dog howl thus, and saw it also with hair bristling, its head upwards, trembling in the stillest midnight, when even dogs believe in ghosts so that it excited my commiseration. For just then went the full moon, silent as death, over the house. Just then did it stand still, a glowing globe, at rest on the flat roof, as if on someone's property. Thereby had the dog been terrified, for dogs believe in thieves and ghosts. And when I again heard such howling, then did it excite my commiseration once more. Where was now the dwarf? And the gateway? And the spider? And all the whispering? Had I dreamt? Had I awakened? Twixt rugged rocks did I suddenly stand alone, dreary in the dreariest moonlight. But there lay a man. And there, the dog leaping, bristling, whining. Now did it see me coming. Then did it howl again, then did it cry. Had I ever heard a dog cry so for help? And verily what I saw the like had I never seen. A young shepherd did I see writhing, choking, quivering, with distorted countenance, and with a heavy black serpent hanging out of his mouth. "'Had I ever seen so much loathing and pale horror on one countenance? "'He had perhaps gone to sleep. "'Then had the serpent crawled into his throat? "'There had it bitten itself fast. "'My hand pulled at the serpent and pulled, in vain. "'I failed to pull the serpent out of his throat. "'Then there cried out of me, "'Bite! Bite its head off! Bite!' So cried it out of me, my horror, my hatred, my loathing, my pity, and all my good and my bad cried with one voice out of me. Ye daring ones around me, ye venturers and adventurers, and whoever of you have embarked with cunning sails on unexplored seas, ye enigma enjoyers, solve unto me the enigma that I then beheld. Interpret unto me the vision of the lonesomest one. For it was a vision and a foresight. What did I then behold in parable? And who is it that must come some day? Who is the shepherd into whose throat the serpent thus crawled? Who is the man into whose throat all the heaviest and blackest will thus crawl? The shepherd, however, bit as my cry had admonished him. He bit with a strong bite. Far away did he spit the head of the serpent, and sprang up. No longer shepherd. No longer man. A transfigured being, a light-surrounded being, that laughed. Never on earth laughed a man as he laughed. Oh, my brethren! I heard a laughter which was no human laughter, and now gnaweth athirst at me, a longing that is never allayed. My longing for that laughter gnaweth at me. Oh, how can I still endure to live, and how could I endure to die at present? Notes by Anthony M. Ludovici the vision and the enigma is perhaps an example of nietzsche in his most obscure vein we must know how persistently he inveighed against the oppressing and depressing influence of man's sense of guilt and consciousness of sin in order to fully grasp the significance of this discourse slowly but surely he thought the values of christianity and judaic traditions had done their work in the minds of men what were once but expedients devised for the discipline of a certain portion of humanity had now passed into man's blood and had become instincts this oppressive and paralyzing sense of guilt and of sin is what nietzsche refers to when he speaks of the spirit of gravity this creature half dwarf half mole whom he bears with him a certain distance on his climb and finally defies and on whom he calls his devil and arch enemy is nothing more than the heavy millstone guilty conscience together with the concept of sin which at present hangs round the neck of men to rise above it to soar is the most difficult of all things today nietzsche is able to think cheerfully and optimistically of the possibility of life in this world recurring again and again "'when he has once cast the dwarf from his shoulders, "'and he announces his doctrine of the eternal recurrence of all things, "'great and small, to his arch enemy and in defiance of him. "'That there is much to be said for Nietzsche's hypothesis "'of the eternal recurrence of all things great and small, "'nobody who has read the literature on the subject will doubt for an instant. "'But it remains a very daring conjecture notwithstanding.' And even in its ultimate effect, as a dogma, on the minds of men, I venture to doubt whether Nietzsche ever properly estimated its worth. See Note on Chapter 57 What follows is clear enough. Zarathustra sees a young shepherd struggling on the ground with a snake holding fast to the back of his throat. The sage, assuming that the snake must have crawled into the young man's mouth while he lay sleeping, runs to his help, and pulls at the loathsome reptile with all his might, but in vain. At last, in despair, Zarathustra appeals to the young man's will. Knowing full well what a ghastly operation he is recommending, he nevertheless cries, quote, bite, bite its head off, bite, end quote, as the only possible solution of the difficulty. The young shepherd bites— and far away he spits the snake's head whereupon he rises quote, "no longer shepherd no longer man a transfigured being a light surrounded being that laughed never on earth laughed a man as he laughed" End quote. in this parable the young shepherd is obviously the man of today the snake that chokes him represents the stultifying and paralyzing social values that threatened to shatter humanity, and the advice "bite, bite," is but Nietzsche's exasperated cry to mankind to alter their values before it is too late. End Part Three, Chapter Forty Six, Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.
0: Part three, chapter
1: forty seven of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. INVOLUNTARY BLISS With such enigmas and bitterness in his heart did Zarathustra sail o'er the sea, when, however, he was four day-journeys from the Happy Isles and from his friends, then had he surmounted all his pain. Triumphantly and with firm foot did he again accept his fate. And then talked Zarathustra in this wise to his exulting conscience. Alone am I again, and like to be so, alone with the pure heaven and the open sea. And again is the afternoon around me. On an afternoon did I find my friends for the first time. On an afternoon also did I find them a second time at the hour when all light becometh stiller. For whatever happiness is still on its way twixt heaven and earth, now seeketh for lodging a luminous soul. With happiness hath all light now become stiller. O afternoon of my life! Once did my happiness also descend to the valley that it might seek a lodging. Then did it find those open, hospitable souls. Oh, afternoon of my life, what did I not surrender that I might have one thing, this living plantation of my thoughts and this dawn of my highest hope? Companions did the creating one once seek, and children of his hope. And lo, it turned out that he could not find them except he himself should first create them. Thus am I in the midst of my work. To my children going, and from them returning. For the sake of his children must Zarathustra perfect himself. For in one's heart one loveth only one's child and one's work. And where there is great love to oneself, then is it the sign of pregnancy. So have I found it. Still are my children verdant in their first spring, Standing nigh one another, and shaken in common by the winds, the trees of my garden and of my best soil. And verily, where such trees stand beside one another, there are happy isles. But one day will I take them up and put each by itself alone, that it may learn lonesomeness and defiance and prudence. Gnarled and crooked and with flexible hardness shall it then stand by the sea, a living lighthouse of unconquerable life. Yonder, where the storms rush down into the sea, and the snout of the mountain drinketh water, shall each on a time have his day and night watches, for his testing and recognition. Recognized and tested shall each be, to see if he be of my type and lineage, if he be a master of a long will, silent even when he speaketh, and giving in such wise that he taketh in giving so that he may one day become my companion, a fellow-creator and fellow-enjoyer with Zarathustra. Such a one as writeth my will on my tables, for the fuller perfection of all things, and for his sake, and for those like him, must I perfect myself. Therefore do I now avoid my happiness, and present myself to every misfortune, for my final testing and recognition, And verily, it were time that I went away, and the wanderer's shadow and the longest tedium and the stillest hour have all said unto me, It is the highest time. The word blew to me through the keyhole and said, Come. The door sprang subtly open unto me and said, Go. But I lay in chain to my love for my children. Desire spread this snare for me the desire for love, that I should become the prey of my children and lose myself in them. Desiring, that is now for me to have lost myself. I possess you, my children. In this possessing shall everything be assurance and nothing desire. But brooding lay the sun of my love upon me, and in his own juice stewed Zarathustra, Then did shadows and doubts fly past me. For frost and winter I now longed. Oh, that frost and winter would again make me crack and crunch, sighed I. Then arose icy mist out of me. My past burst its tomb. Many pains, buried alive, woke up, fully slept, had they merely concealed in corpse clothes. So called everything unto me in signs. It is time, but I heard not until at last mine abyss moved and my thought bit me. Ah, abysmal thought, which art my thought. When shall I find strength to hear thee burrowing and no longer tremble? To my very throat throbbeth my heart when I hear thee burrowing thy muteness even is like to strangle me thou abysmal mute one as yet have i never ventured to call thee up it hath been enough that i have carried thee about with me as yet have i not been strong enough for my final lion wantonness and playfulness sufficiently formidable unto me hath thy weight ever been but one day shall I yet find the strength and the lion's voice which will call thee up. When I shall have surmounted myself therein, then will I surmount myself also in that which is greater, and a victory shall be the seal of my perfection. Meanwhile do I sail along on uncertain seas. Chance flattereth me, smooth-tongued chance. Forward and backward do I gaze, Still see I no end: as yet hath the hour of my final struggle not come to me, or doth it come to me perhaps just now? Verily, with insidious beauty do sea and life gaze upon me round about, O oh, afternoon of my life, O oh, happiness before eventide, O oh, haven upon high seas, O oh, peace in uncertainty! How I distrust all of you! Verily, distrustful am I of your insidious beauty! Like the lover am I who distrusteth too sleek smiling. As he pusheth the best-beloved before him, tender even in severity the jealous one, so do I push this blissful hour before me. Away with thee, thou blissful hour! With thee hath there come to me an involuntary bliss. Ready for my severest pain do I here stand. At the wrong time hast thou come. Away with thee, thou blissful hour. Rather, harbor there with my children. Hasten, and bless them before eventide with my happiness. There, already approacheth eventide. The sun sinketh. Away, my happiness. Thus spake Zarathustra, and he waited for his misfortune the whole night, but he waited in vain. The night remained clear and calm, and happiness itself came nigher and nigher unto him. Toward morning, however, Zarathustra laughed to his heart, and said mockingly, "'Happiness runneth after me. That is because I do not run after women. Happiness, however, is a woman.' Notes by Anthony M. Ludovici. This, like *The Wanderer*, is one of the many introspective passages in the work, and is full of innuendos and hints as to the Nietzschean outlook on life. End of part three, chapter forty-seven. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Part three, chapter forty eight of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. BEFORE SUNRISE O oh, heaven above me, thou pure, thou deep heaven, thou abyss of light, gazing on thee I tremble with divine desires, up to thy height to toss myself, that is MY depth! In thy purity to hide myself, that is mine innocence. The God veileth his beauty, thus hidest thou thy stars. Thou speakest not, thus proclaimest thou thy wisdom unto me. Mute o'er the raging sea hast thou risen for me to-day. Thy love and thy modesty make a revelation unto my raging soul in that thou camest unto me beautiful, veiled in thy beauty, in that thou spakest unto me mutely, obvious in thy wisdom. Oh, how could I fail to divine all the modesty of thy soul? Before the sun didst thou come unto me, the lonesomest one. We have been friends from the beginning. To us are grief, gruesomeness, and ground common even the sun is common to us we do not speak to each other because we know too much we keep silent to each other we smile our knowledge to each other art thou not the light of my fire hast thou not the sister soul of mine insight together did we learn everything together did we learn to ascend beyond ourselves to ourselves And to smile uncloudedly uncloudedly to smile down out of luminous eyes and out of miles of distance when under us constraint and purpose and guilt steam like rain and i wandered alone for what did my soul hunger by night and in labyrinthine paths and climbed i mountains whom did i ever seek if not thee upon mountains. And all my wandering and mountain-climbing, a necessity was it merely, and a makeshift of the unhandy one, to fly only, wanteth mine entire will, to fly into thee. And what have I hated more than passing clouds, and whatever tainteth thee? And mine own hatred have I even hated, because it tainted thee? The passing clouds I detest, those stealthy cats of prey. They take from thee and me what is common to us, the vast unbounded yea and amen saying. These mediators and mixers we detest, the passing clouds, those half-and-half ones that have neither learned to bless nor to curse from the heart. Rather. Will I sit in a tub under a closed heaven? Rather, will I sit in the abyss without heaven than see thee, thou luminous heaven, tainted with passing clouds? And oft have I longed to pin them fast with the jagged gold wires of lightning, that I might, like the thunder, beat the drum upon their kettle-bellies. An angry drummer, because they rob me of thy yea and amen. Thou heaven above me, thou pure, thou luminous heaven, thou abyss of light, because they rob thee of my, yea and amen, for rather will I have noise and thunders and tempest blasts than this discreet, doubting cat repose. And also amongst men do I hate most of all the soft treaders and -and half-and-half ones and the doubting, hesitating, passing clouds." And he who cannot bless shall learn to curse this clear teaching dropped unto me from the clear heaven the star standeth in my heaven even in dark nights i however am a blesser and a yeasayer if thou but be around me thou pure thou luminous heaven thou abyss of light into all abysses do i then carry my beneficent saying. A blesser have I become and a yea-sayer, and therefore strove I long and was I a striver that I might one day get my hands free for blessing. This, however, is my blessing, to stand above everything as its own heaven, its round roof, its azure bell, and eternal security, and blessed is he who thus blesseth. For all things are baptized at the font of eternity, and beyond good and evil. Good and evil themselves, however, are but fugitive shadows, and damp afflictions, and passing clouds. Verily, it is a blessing, and not a blasphemy, when I teach that, above all things there standeth the heaven of chance, the heaven of innocence, the heaven of hazard, the heaven of wantonness of hazard that is the oldest nobility in the world that gave i back to all things i emancipated them from bondage under purpose this freedom and celestial serenity did i put like an azure bell above all things when i taught that over them and through them no eternal will willeth This wantonness and folly did I put in place of that will when I taught that in everything there is one thing impossible, rationality. A little reason, to be sure, a germ of wisdom scattered from star to star, this leaven is mixed in all things. For the sake of folly, wisdom is mixed in all things. A little wisdom is indeed possible, but this blessed security have i found in all things that they prefer to dance on the feet of chance Oh, heaven above me thou pure thou lofty heaven this is now thy purity unto me that there is no eternal reason spider and reason cobweb that thou art to me a dancing floor for divine chances that thou art to me a table of the gods, for divine dice and dice-players. But thou blushest. Have I spoken unspeakable things? Have I abused when I meant to bless thee? Or is it the shame of being two of us that maketh thee blush? Dost thou bid me go and be silent, because now day cometh? The world is deep, and deeper than e'er the day could read. Not everything may be uttered in presence of day, but day cometh, so let us part. O heaven above me, thou modest one, thou glowing one, O thou, my happiness before sunrise! The day cometh, so let us part. Thus spake Zarathustra. Notes by Anthony M. Ludovici Here we have a record of Zarathustra's avowal of optimism, as also the important statement concerning chance or accident. Verse 27 Those who are familiar with Nietzsche's philosophy will not require to be told what an important role his doctrine of chance plays in his teaching. The giant chance has hitherto played with the puppet-man. This is the fact he cannot contemplate with equanimity. Man shall now exploit chance, he says again and again, and make it fall on its knees before him. (See verse thirty three in On the Olive Mount, and verses nine to ten in The Bedwarfing Virtue.) End of part three, chapter forty eight, recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. part three chapter forty nine of thus spake zarathustra by friedrich nietzsche translated by thomas common this librivox recording is in the public domain the bedwarfing virtue one when zarathustra was again on the continent he did not go straightway to his mountains and his cave but made many wanderings and questionings and ascertained this and that so that he said of himself jestingly Lo, a river that floweth back unto its source in many windings. For he wanted to learn what had taken place among men during the interval, whether they had become greater or smaller. And once, when he saw a row of new houses, he marvelled and said, What do these houses mean? Verily, no great soul put them up as its simile. Did perhaps a silly child take them out of its toy-box? Would that another child put them again into the box? And these rooms and chambers, can men go out and in there? They seem to be made for silk dolls, or for dainty eaters who perhaps let others eat with them. And Zarathustra stood still and meditated. At last, he said sorrowfully, "'There hath everything become smaller. "'Everywhere do I see lower doorways. "'He who is of my type can still go there through, "'but he must stoop. "'Oh, when shall I arrive again at my home, "'where I shall no longer have to stoop, "'shall no longer have to stoop before the small ones?' And Zarathustra sighed, and gazed into the distance. The same day, however, he gave his Discourse on the Bedwarfing Virtue. two I pass through this people and keep mine eyes open, they do not forgive me for not envying their virtues, they bite at me because I say unto them that for small people small virtues are necessary: and because it is hard for me to understand that small people are necessary. Here am I still like a cock in a strange farmyard, at which even the hens peck. But on that account I am not unfriendly to the hens. I am courteous toward them, as toward all small annoyances, to be prickly toward what is small seemeth to me wisdom for hedgehogs they all speak of me when they sit around their fire in the evening they speak of me but no one thinketh of me this is the new stillness which i have experienced their noise around me spreadeth a mantle over my thoughts they shout to one another what is this gloomy cloud about to do to us let us see that it doth not bring a plague upon us And. Recently did a woman seize upon her child that was coming unto me.
2: "'Take the children away,' cried she. "'Such eyes scorch children's souls.'
1: "'They cough when I speak. They think coughing an objection to strong winds. They divine nothing of the boisterousness of my happiness.' "'We have not yet time for Zarathustra.' So they object but what matter about a time that hath no time for zarathustra and if they should altogether praise me how could i go to sleep on their praise a girdle of spines is their praise unto me it scratcheth me even when i take it off and this also did i learn among them the praiser doeth as if he gave back in truth however he wanteth more to be given him. Ask my foot if their louding and luring strains please it, verily, to such measure and tick-tack it liketh neither to dance nor to stand still, to small virtues would they fain lure and laud me, to the tick-tack of small happiness would they fain persuade my foot. I pass through this people and keep mine eyes open. They have become smaller, and ever become smaller. The reason thereof is their doctrine of happiness and virtue. For they are moderate also in virtue, because they want comfort. With comfort, however, moderate virtue only is compatible. To be sure, they also learn in their way to stride on and stride forward, that I call their hobbling. Thereby they become a hindrance to all who are in haste. And many of them go forward and look backwards thereby with stiffened necks. Those do I like to run up against. Foot and I shall not lie, nor give the lie to each other. But there is much lying among small people. Some of them will, but most of them are willed. Some of them are genuine, but most of them are bad actors. There are actors without knowing it amongst them, and actors without intending it. The genuine ones are always rare, especially the genuine actors. Of man there is little here therefore do their women masculinize themselves. For only he who is man enough will save the woman in woman. And this hypocrisy found I worst amongst them, that even those who command feign the virtues of those who serve. I serve, thou servest, we serve. So chanteth here even the hypocrisy of the rulers. And alas! if the first lord be only the first servant. Ah! Even upon their hypocrisy did mine eyes' curiosity alight, and well did I divine all their fly happiness and their buzzing round sunny window panes. So much kindness, so much weakness, do I see. So much justice and pity, so much weakness. Round, fair, and considerate are they to one another, as grains of sand are round, fair, and considerate to grains of sand. Modestly to embrace a small happiness, that do they call submission, and at the same time they peer modestly after a new small happiness. In their hearts they want simply one thing, most of all, that no one hurt them thus do they anticipate every one's wishes and do well unto every one that however is cowardice though it be called virtue and when they chance to speak harshly those small people then do i hear therein only their hoarseness every draught of air maketh them hoarse shrewd indeed are they their virtues have shrewd fingers but they lack fists. Their fingers do not know how to creep behind fists. Virtue for them is what maketh modest and tame. Therewith have they made the wolf a dog, and man himself man's best domestic animal. We set our chair in the midst, so saith their smirking unto me and as far from dying gladiators as from satisfied swine. That, however, is mediocrity, though it be called moderation. 3. I passed through this people and let fall many words, but they know neither how to take nor how to retain them. They wonder why I came not to revile and vice, and verily I came not to warn against pickpockets either. They wonder why I am not ready to abet and wet their wisdom, as if they had not yet enough of wise acres whose voices grate on mine ear like slate pencils. And when I call out, Curse all the cowardly devils in you, That would fain whimper and fold the hands and adore then do they shout
2: zarathustra is godless
1: and especially do their teachers of submission shout this but precisely in their ears do i love to cry yea i am zarathustra the godless those teachers of submission wherever there is aught puny or sickly or scabby there do they creep like lice and only my disgust preventeth me from cracking them well this is my sermon for their ears i am zarathustra the godless who saith who is more godless than i that i may enjoy his teaching i am zarathustra the godless Where do I find mine equal? And all those are mine equals who give unto themselves their will, and divest themselves of all submission. I am Zarathustra the Godless. I cook every chance in my pot, and only when it hath been quite cooked do I welcome it as my food. And verily many a chance came imperiously unto me, but still more imperiously did my will speak unto it then did it lie imploringly upon its knees imploring that it might find home and heart with me and saying flatteringly see o zarathustra how friend only cometh unto friend but why talk i when no one hath mine ears and so will i shout it out unto all the winds ye ever become smaller ye small people ye crumble away ye comfortable ones ye will yet perish by your many small virtues by your many small omissions and by your many small submissions too tender too yielding so is your soil But for a tree to become great, it seeketh to twine hard roots around hard rocks. Also, what ye omit weaveth at the web of all the human future. Even your knot is a cobweb, and a spider that liveth on the blood of the future. And when ye take, then is it like stealing ye small virtuous ones.' "'But even among knaves honour saith that "'one shall only steal when one cannot rob. "'It giveth itself. "'That is also a doctrine of submission. "'But I say unto you, ye comfortable ones, "'that it taketh to itself, "'and will ever take more and more from you. "'That ye would renounce all half-willing.' and would decide for idleness as ye decide for action ah that she understood my word do ever what she will but first be such as ken will love ever your neighbor as yourselves but first be such as love themselves such as love with great love such as love with great contempt Thus speaketh Zarathustra the godless. But why talk I when no one hath mine ears? It is still an hour too early for me here. Mine own forerunner am I among this people, Mine own cockcrow in dark lanes. But there hour cometh, And there cometh also mine. Hourly do they become smaller, Poorer, unfruitfuler poor herbs poor earth and soon shall they stand before me like dry grass and prairie and verily weary of themselves and panting for fire more than for water o blessed hour of the lightning o mystery before noontide running fires will i one day make of them and heralds with flaming tongues herald shall they one day with flaming
2: tongues
1: it cometh it is nigh the great
2: noontide
1: thus spake zarathustra notes by anthony m ludovici this requires scarcely any comment it is a satire on modern man and his belittling virtues in verses twenty three and twenty four of the second part of the discourse we are reminded of nietzsche's powerful indictment of the great of to-day in the antichrist aphorism forty three at present nobody has any longer the courage for separate rights for rights of domination for a feeling of reverence for himself and his equals for pathos of distance our politics are morbid from this want of courage the aristocracy of character has been undermined most craftily by the lie of the equality of souls and if the belief in the privilege of the many makes revolutions and will continue to make them it is christianity let us not doubt it it is christian valuations which translate every revolution merely into blood and crime." See also, Beyond Good and Evil, pages 120, 121. Nietzsche thought it was a bad sign of the times that even rulers have lost the courage of their positions, and that a man of Frederick the Great's power and distinguished gifts should have been able to say, Ich bin der erste Diener des
2: Staates
1: i am the first servant of the state to this utterance of the great sovereign verse 24 undoubtedly refers cowardice and mediocrity are the names with which he labels modern notions of virtue and moderation in part three we get the sentiments of the discourse in the happy isles but perhaps in stronger terms Once again we find Nietzsche thoroughly at ease, if not cheerful as an atheist, and speaking with vertiginous daring to make chance go on its knees to him. In verse 20, Zarathustra makes yet another attempt at defining his entirely anti-anarchical attitude, and unless such passages have been completely overlooked, or deliberately ignored hitherto by those who will persist in laying anarchy at his door, it is impossible to understand how he ever became associated with that foul political party the last verse introduces the expression the great noontide in the poem to be found at the end of beyond good and evil we meet with the expression again and we shall find it occurring time and again in nietzsche's works It will be found fully elucidated in the fifth part of The Twilight of the Idols, but for those who cannot refer to this book, it were well to point out that Nietzsche called the present period, our period, the noon of man's history. Dawn is behind us. The childhood of mankind is over. Now we know. There is no longer any excuse for mistakes which will tend to botch and disfigure the type of man. With respect to what is past, he says, I have, like all discerning ones, great toleration, that is to say, generous self-control. But my feeling changes suddenly, and breaks out as soon as I enter the modern period. Our period, our age, knows. See Note on Chapter Seventy End of part three, chapter 49, recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.